Thanks, Tom, and thanks, Marty, and thanks, everyone, for being here. It's really great to see you. It's great to be uh, in a front of a room full of people instead of just uh, a void. Uh, you know, I've been in the habit of just talking to the camera, so if you, know, you find me just sort of fixating up in the top right corner, uh, I am trying to break that now well-entrenched habit. Um, and like Marty said, my, Marty was thankful for the staff team. I am incredibly thankful for all of you. Uh, for the various ways that people have jumped in to love and serve each other over the past uh, several months. Um, I've heard lots of different stories of how people have uh, just been looking out for each other and caring for each other. And so I'm very thankful for, uh, for you and how you have done that. Uh, and even just you know, messages and prayers that people have sent me. Uh, I am thankful for your love and care and support. Uh, and so is the, the whole staff team. So thank you. Uh, and I'm actually really glad to be looking at John together. Um, it might seem like a slightly odd passage for us to be uh, looking at and a, a big, a, an odd chunk of the Bible to be looking at over the next few weeks as we resume meeting together. Uh, because as we come back together and start welcoming and saying hello to each other, we see Jesus saying goodbye. Uh, it's sort of an odd juxtaposition, but I actually think it's a really good part of the Bible to be looking at together. Uh, as Jesus draws together from his teaching uh, things his followers need to know for life after he's gone. Uh, it's some of the essential things Jesus wants his followers to know before the events of the cross uh, overtake him. And so we're going to be looking at today's part of the Bible in three main chunks. Uh, firstly, understanding the cross. Uh, second, the wrong way. And thirdly, the right way. And we'll think a little bit about what the different parts have to say to us today as we go through. Um, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, the big points that we're looking at today, they might actually not seem especially new or surprising. Uh, Jesus talks about the importance of the cross. Uh, we'll hear him say he's the way to God. We'll hear him say he reveals God perfectly. Uh, you know, it could be easy to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, we all know that. Uh, but as we think carefully about what Jesus has to say here in this farewell discourse, Jesus really wants his followers to think rightly about life after he's gone and they wait for him to return. And so we're going to see that without the cross, we live in a world of uncertainty and trouble and failure. But the cross changes everything. It gives us a certain hope of eternal life with God and it shapes the entire direction of our lives. And as we continue to emerge from lockdown and we resume meeting together, it's worth listening to Jesus here about what it is that shapes our lives, both as individuals and as a church, because the cross has both eternal and present implications for us that we're going to be thinking about this week and over the next few weeks as we look at these next few chapters in John. Uh, and in fact, as you resume meeting with family and friends and colleagues uh, and you take the chance to maybe deepen some of those relationships a little bit, uh, sure, ask about the different hobbies and activities that you've uh, done that helped you get through lockdown, but maybe also push a bit deeper did lockdown reveal something to you about where you look for direction and purpose and meaning? And is that actually a solid foundation? Actually, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that's probably a timely question for us all to be asking ourselves and considering it in the light of Jesus' teaching that we're looking at this morning and over the next few weeks. First up, though, understanding the cross. In the previous passage to this one, uh, the one that we looked at last week, we saw Judas leave to betray Jesus. His departure has kicked off the events that would lead to the cross, and as the wheels are in motion that will lead to the cross, Jesus identifies things that his disciples need to know about what's about to happen and what it means for them. 
And Jesus draws, his atten- draws their attention to glory, his departure, and his love. His glory, his departure, and his love. They're the things that Jesus, the things Jesus has spoken about throughout John's gospel, and they're ideas that will be picked up again over the following few weeks as he shows us that the cross is absolutely central, uh, central to understanding uh, who he is and how to live uh, after he's gone. So point A, his glory. Let's have a look there at verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Judas has left and the events that will lead to Jesus' crucifixion are underway. But Jesus wants his followers to be clear that the cross is where the Son of Man and the Father will be glorified. One of the striking images from the Old Testament of God's rescuing king was from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel, the prophet, had a vision of one like a son of man coming to God uh, and he was given authority and glory and power over all nations and peoples and every language and his kingdom lasts forever. And Jesus draws on this image to help his disciples understand that this vision is about to become a reality and it will happen at the cross. And it's important that the disciples recognise this, that the cross really achieves God and the Son's glory because the cross looks like a shameful defeat. It looks like a failure. It looks like Jesus was not the rescuing king that God had sent, but just a delusional liar. That's what it looks like, but Jesus says, no, that's not the way to understand it. As we think about what Jesus has taught about his death in John as well, though, we've seen Jesus' death is a selfless sacrifice where he'll bear God's punishment for our sin, that his death shows his obedience and love for God as he submits to God's plan. It shows the love of God that he would give his son to the world, the justice of God that he would not allow sin to go unpunished, and the faithfulness of God as he fulfills his promises to rescue his people. The cross shows God's glory because it supremely reveals what God is like, that he is just and loving and trustworthy. And in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion, it's essential that Jesus' followers understand the cross rightly. The cross is where God's glory is revealed. But there's more. Point B, departure. In verse 33, Jesus says that the cross means he's leaving his disciples they won't be coming with him. And we'll come back to this in a minute because that's where Peter homes in on and the discussion kind of travels. Uh, But the cross also means his departure. But thirdly, Jesus says the cross is where God and... uh, We've seen God and Jesus are glorified. It'll mean Jesus is departing. But finally, it'll define the lives of his followers because point C, it shows his love. Verse 34, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In some ways, this is not actually a new commandment. You know, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it's one of the earliest books from Israelite history. We'd commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love each other wasn't new per se. But what is new is this qualifier that Jesus gives. It's not just love your neighbor as yourself, but love each other as I have loved you. 
the other person, self-sacrificial love that Jesus shows on the cross is the standard for how followers of Jesus are to love each other, especially those we find hard to love. And when they do this, it actually gives the world a glimpse of what God has done for us, for followers of Jesus. The cross is to define the lives of his followers. And these things are true for us today. Christians are called to understand the cross rightly and live in light of it while we wait for Jesus to return. Jesus wants us to keep seeing that the cross is where he, the Son, and the Father are glorified. And Jesus wants us to love each other as he has loved us. Now, we'll be coming back to these ideas over the coming weeks as Jesus picks them up again. But for now, note that he places the understanding of the cross and its implications for the disciples at the centre of what it means for life after he's gone. Jesus places the cross at the centre of life for his disciples after he's gone. But the disciples, they don't get it. And Peter jumps in at verse 36. Where is Jesus going? We're at point two, uh, the wrong way. Jesus leaving is cause for concern and anxiety amongst his disciples. I mean, we've seen over the past few weeks, they know his life is in danger. They know they've had to leave Jerusalem with him before because his life is in danger. It kind of seems odd that there's this change of plans here, especially if he's talking about being glorified. It sounds like a good end is at hand. Odd. Why is Jesus, where is Jesus going? And he jumps in again. Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Uh, it's a bold claim, and it highlights Peter still does not understand. Peter doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about his death on the cross. Peter doesn't understand that he needs Jesus to lay down his life for him. And Peter does not understand that his self-confidence is entirely misplaced. Jesus, however, understands Peter all too well. Have a look at verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. See, Peter is still trying to serve Jesus in his own strength, and his strength will fail. Far from laying down his life for Jesus, Peter will deny he even knows Jesus. He hasn't understood what Jesus is going to do for him at the cross, and he hasn't understood what it says about his own weakness. And so without understanding the cross, Peter faces this uncertain future. And as he faces this uncertainty, he's depending on his own strength, which will inevitably fail. And it raises the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus wholeheartedly? I find it all too easy to think that following Jesus is just grounded in things that I do, in my achievements, or even as a church, our collective achievements, you know, our numbers, uh, how exuberant our singing is, the success of the events we run. It's all too easy to think that following Jesus is grounded in what I do. And we have a lot of very gifted and capable people here who on numerous metrics could point to their achievement and success. And we do. We do have moments that are impressive to us and each other. And there are plenty of times it's all too easy to think like Peter. I am of great use to Jesus. 
But the cross says, actually, we can't follow Jesus wholeheartedly if it's about me and what I do. Because as we see Peter wrestling with the reality of the cross and trying to understand it, we are challenged as well to keep our own efforts in perspective, to recognise the depths of our sin and our weakness and the inevitability of our failure to follow Jesus. Sooner or later, we will fall. We will fail. We won't achieve what we need to. But when you are all too aware of the shortcomings of your own efforts to follow Jesus, take comfort because Jesus doesn't stop at pointing out Peter's impending failure. Even though all of his disciples would abandon him in just a few hours and in the midst of his own distress, Jesus offers comfort to his weak and failing disciples. Chapter 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. Uh, would I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. What do you do when your heart is troubled, perhaps by your own weakness and failings, or when the world uh, shakes and all your plans and expectations fall and look like they're crumbling? Well, Jesus says, believe in God and believe in me. Which seems like an odd thing if he's about to leave, but because Jesus' imminent departure could seem like a loss, like a huge step backwards, but Jesus lifts their eyes to heaven to God's presence, to the source of life and blessing, and he assures them that him leaving is actually for their good. Uh, firstly, Jesus' leaving is for the good of his followers because he goes to prepare a place for them in heaven. And there's plenty of space in heaven. It's not like trying to buy something in limited supply, you know, waiting online on the Ticketek website, waiting for tickets to go live, hitting that refresh button, waiting for the page to load just in case you miss out. No, they're not going to miss out. Despite their weaknesses and failures, even the ones that are yet to occur, Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. They're not going to miss out. And second, if he's gone for the purpose of preparing a place for them, if he endures the pain and horror of the cross to do it, they can rest assured he will return for them. You know, this is not a home project or a lockdown project that gets half done and then just left aside when something else comes up. His departure is not the end. They can be confident he will return and he'll bring them to heaven with him. And finally, the disciples also know how to get there, but more on that in a moment. See, as Jesus teaches his disciples about living between his departure and his return, when they're confronted with their own anxieties and weaknesses and failures, Jesus draws his followers' attention to what his followers have been rescued for. And what's true of his disciples here in the story is true for us who follow Jesus as well. He's not promising your best life now. He's promising something far better and far longer lasting, eternal life as part of God's people in heaven. Jesus points beyond the present reality of our situation to what his death will achieve. And so the cross gives us confidence in the face of our failures, our inadequacy and uncertainty because the cross is where Jesus heads to prepare a place for us in heaven. The wrong way 
to live in light of Jesus' return is depending on our own strength. The right way is to trust in Jesus and what the cross will achieve. And the disciples know the way. Or do they? Jesus says the disciples know the way, but Thomas disagrees. Verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? As Thomas has listened to Jesus, he's still confused about what Jesus is saying. It's, it's like he's taken Jesus at a purely literal level, describing a geographic location that they're going to need to get to. But Jesus underlines that the only way to God, the way to eternal life, it's through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus' claim about being the way, the truth, and the life, it can be kind of an uncomfortable truth to hold on to. You know, it, it sounds unloving in our society that values and prizes and elevates personal choice and affirmation of personal choices. Jesus pretty unambiguous claim that unless you trust him, you, you cannot get to the Father, you cannot enter God's kingdom, and you cannot escape God's judgment, it sounds inflexible. It sounds judgmental. It sounds unloving. But it's not unloving if it's true. It might be uncomfortable because of what it says we are or where others who we might know and love stand before God as they continue to ignore and reject Jesus. It might make it uncomfortable for that reason. But on the other hand, it is actually very comforting. You see, despite our sin and weakness and our inability, there is a way to God. There is a way to salvation and there is a way to eternal life. And it's not based on what I do. I'm not going to be denied entry for anything that I have done or anything that I've failed to do. And in a world that can be troubling and uncertain when things go wrong and are out of control, what Jesus says is of great comfort. There is a certain future. There is a way to God. And that way is through trusting Jesus. But why trust Jesus? What if we need more, more evidence, more proof? Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And I wonder if Philip's question resonates with you. You know, if only I had a a deeper or or more tangible experience of God, that would be enough. That would help me believe Jesus and help me while I wait. It might particularly resonate just after this extended period of of dryness and frustration. If only I had something that, you know, gave me a bit more juice to get going. Well, Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus says he is the one who reveals God. And as he's taught his disciples and they've seen him do the work of the Father, they've seen God in the flesh. In fact, the words he speaks are the words of the Father. He does the work of God. And as we heard Jesus say 
earlier, as he goes to the cross, that will be the supreme revelation of God's glory to the world, of what he is like. Jesus' departure will be a far greater revelation of God than the glimpse Philip thinks is what he needs. While we wait for Jesus to return, it's a good thing to want to know God better. The question is, how do you see God more clearly? There's lots of things that can be presented as spiritual experiences or things to really help us connect with God. And some of those, in their place, they can be good gifts from God. You know, that feeling that you get when you're you know, out in creation, bushwalking, surfing, running, whatever it is that you like. And you know, maybe the elation that you feel when you're singing or making music, admiring art and architecture. They can all kind of give us a lift. And sometimes people will even describe them as a spiritual experience. And in their place, those and many other things can be good and worth enjoying. But Jesus says to his followers, no, the way to connect with God, to see God clearly, well, it's actually by looking at Jesus by listening to his word, seeing who Jesus is and what he has done. And one of the reasons it's so important to get it right is that Jesus' followers are in this incredibly privileged position as we are caught up into God's work. Did you see there in verse 12? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. They'll do even greater thing than these because I am going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for me anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus says to his disciples that whoever believes in me will do the work I've been doing. In fact, greater works. And previously in John's Gospel, when Jesus has talked about the work he is doing, for example, chapter 5, verse 20 to 25, or chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, it's related to the life giving words that Jesus has spoken and the need for people to believe in him. While we wait for Jesus to return, his followers keep doing the work of the Father as we point people to God by speaking his word and pointing people to Jesus so that others might trust him and have life in his name as we do. And once again, when we're confronted with our own weakness, our anxiety, at the difficulty of the task, Jesus says we can come to him in prayer as we do it. Uh, we tend to hear Jesus say, you may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. And we emphasize anything. And I can come up with a lot of anything. I don't know about you. Uh, but in my name is not just a magical phrase to get what you want. You know, if it was, a lot of us would probably be living even more comfortably than we are. The emphasis, though, is on in my name. In my name ties Jesus' promise here to the Bible's understanding of prayer. You know, one of the phrases in the Bible that uh, people use that signals their prayer is that they call on the name of the Lord. People pray to the Lord, they call on the name of the Lord to ask him to fulfill his promises. We can bring anything to God in prayer. We can pray about anything, but the thrust of prayer in the Bible is people asking God to fulfill his promises. And here, particularly, for his word of life and salvation and judgment in Jesus to go out so that he might be glorified. We've kind of covered quite a lot in this last section on the right way. But as the disciples keep wrestling with Jesus' impending departure, Jesus assures them they know the way to God. 
And the way to see God clearly is to look to Jesus and his word and to remember that while we wait, we are in the privileged position of being part of God's work to save the world as we point people to Jesus and the life we have in his name and to know that he is still able to hear us and help us as we wait. It's a bit of a complex passage. There's a lot going on. And, you know, the dialogue kind of makes it a little bit hard to sometimes follow the logic. But as we look at this passage together, we see the centrality of the cross to who we are as God's people, which is an important thing to remember, especially as we resume our meeting together. And as things open up, as we resume meeting together, whether we are feeling confident and excited about getting amongst it, or feeling a bit battered after lockdown and just aware of our weaknesses and frailties and limitations, the cross defines how we view ourselves and the world. It's the cross that comforts us in our weakness as we are reminded of all that we can't do, but Jesus has done for us. It's the cross that opens the way to God and assures us of our access to God as nothing else can. And it's the cross that we have the privilege to proclaim while we wait for Jesus to return. Because it's at the cross where Jesus is glorified as God rescues his people from death and judgment and brings us life and hope and security. It's the cross where God shows his love. Let's pray. Father, as we resume meeting together, we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that it is where you reveal your glory and your love for us. We thank you that even in our weaknesses, the cross means that we can have a sure certainty of our future. That in our strength, it humbles us and reminds us to look to you. And we pray that you would help us to keep holding onto it firmly, to look to your son uh, as the, uh, the, the way that we see you and help us to point others to him uh, as we resume meeting with them as well. Amen.